Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. Today we're going to talk about a topic which, well, is in discourse on many different levels, but not quite in the context we're going to talk about it today. So we're going to talk about environment, but from the perspective of machine learning or artificial neural networks. We will talk about this topic with today's guest. Her name is Charlotte Emily Elektra Lange, or well, we would call her Charlie because she's a very dear friend of mine and it would be weird to start calling her Charlotte now. <laughs> um, and I'm really looking forward to speak about your thesis topic today. And as always, we would like to play our little welcome game so that we can get to know the guest a little bit more. And um, for that, I will start with the first question. As a kid, I always wanted to be. Uh, as a kid, I always wanted to be an author, so I wanted to write books. Nice. Novels or science books? or specific? First, I started with novels, and then I figured out I was too lazy to write, so I wanted to be a lecturer to read books and get paid for that. Uh, that was the second. <laughs> and reading is so much easier for you than writing? Yes, I read very quickly. Not everyone needs a timer or a limit <laughs> of 10 pages <laughs> to get himself to reading. <laughs> The next question, if I was an emoji, I would be? The one that is upside down. Did somebody else already mention I that one? I think so, yeah. Really? I think Yona? Okay, I'm a cat that is upside, that is upside down. Oh, But right. that doesn't exist. That kind of fits me. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing to do on a day off is? Probably go hiking and take a book. And on I don't know, hike. don't plan things. Yeah, I always take books on a hike. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm most fascinated by? The earth. It's simple like that. Okay, yeah. I wouldn't say the earth is simple, but fair. <laughs> it's true, that's why it's so fascinating. I know it's time to call it a day when... Um, when my alarm goes off that says uh, call it a day. So you have an alarm which finishes your day, basically. Yeah, I, I, I tend to work very late in the evenings, but I know it's got not good for me. So my, my cell phone reminds me that I like should stop. But is it a fixed time or is it like... It's a fixed time every day, day yeah. Okay. What time is it? It used to be 11 p.m., but I'm trying to shift it forwards for like an hour now. So since this is an auditory format, <laughs> Zünke was looking quite shocked when Charlie said 11 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's not, it's not good. But I, I, I don't know, I get active during the night. I'm a, yeah. You know. It's like this, yeah, I'm an owl. So n since we know you as a person a bit better now, <laughs> we would also like to introduce your scientific background a bit. Um, so you've done your bachelor's in cognitive science at the University of Osnabrück. And during your bachelor's, you've done two internships abroad. One was in South Africa and the other one was in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, you are working at the SFN uh, in Kassel. The SFN is a student research center um, where you support students in doing different topics of research. Mm -hmm. um, so high school students. High school students, yeah. yes. And you also work for the research center Mila in Canada. Yes, right. Elisa already 
hinted at the fact that today's topic is the environment and uh, potentially the connection to artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this is something that is very present in the public discourse, especially amongst young people. But is there some reason that you are specifically interested in that topic or is it just the general um, yeah, the general consensus of the younger generation that there is a problem that needs to be addressed? It's hmm. a good question. I'm, I'm actually not quite sure how it happened because I started out with just being interested in machine learning and initially I wanted to do like brain-computer interfaces, which is like how I started cognitive science. But over time, I just kind of figured out that the environment is just something that's so close to my heart. And I got really annoyed by how machine learning and AI was like seen in the media, like, oh, it's a bad thing. And I was like, no, it's, it's actually a tool. And I might be able to use this tool to do something with it that is important to me, which would be the environment. And yeah, it's just like really slowly shifted. And I, I'd say now that I'm kind of a child of my generation in that respect, like uh, probably too. Um, I was like really slow shift and like suddenly... Like my eyes opened, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's actually something important. Um, so you've already mentioned that you wanted to make a connection of the environment and machine learning. So what exactly or how exactly are both topics correlated? And also, can you quickly summarize what machine learning is for you specifically? Okay, what machine learning is for me, oh, that... <laughs> It's not as easy, I'd say. So first off, AI and machine learning are usually different things. And I don't really do AI, I do machine learning. So um, programs that are programmed in a way to learn from data or from other biases we, we tell them. So it's not that you know we have this big AI that is able to do anything. There's no creativity involved. And um, within machine learning, there are, of course, different methods. and a subfield of that is actually deep learning, so concerned with artificial neural networks. And this is more what I do. So I, I don't really do machine learning. I do deep learning. Um, so that's a distinction. And artificial neural networks is really just a method of trying to imitate what happens in our brain. Like somebody thought like, okay, how, how do humans are, how are humans able to learn from what they see? And somebody like sat down and like pretty much wrote a recipe. Um, and, and in this recipe, um, there are placeholders. So what we say is we don't really know the solution yet. Um, we just give you a way to figure it out and, and the program fills the buckets with, with what what is like a solution um and this is what i do basically so i i i can concern myself with how to sketch up these models these buckets in a way that makes sense in a way that fits to our data um and what has that to do with the environment what has that to do with the environment so um there are a lot of ways you can combine these two things so I started off actually, maybe maybe let's you know go timeline wise. So I started off with my um, first project, which was concerned with the environment, which was um, the research internship I did in South Africa, and this was about 
conservation. Um, so protecting animals, like conserving what's there. And um, this is quite a huge topic. South Africa is especially interesting because there are a lot of national parks, national reserves, and there are a lot of animals. And most of these animals are by now endangered. Um, and usually you have scientists concerning themselves with what's going on in these um, national parks and these nature reserves because actually animals are quite a good indicator of how our environment is doing and they impact everything around them. They impact the plants, they impact the people, so it like goes hand in hand. Um, but if you imagine South Africa, it's huge. It's really, really huge and you can't have as many scientists to really capture everything. So the project in South Africa was about um, specifically birds, because birds are a really good predictor um, for you know how, how an area is doing. And the idea was to sketch up a system, which is basically a lot of cameras that are like, you know, scattered around the park that are capturing the birds, like make a picture when it flies by, and that is able to count them. Because scientists wanted to know how many birds, especially how many birds of which species are in that area. Um, and then it gets really difficult because it wasn't about identifying the species. It was about identifying the indiv individual birds, so counting them. And like most humans are not able to do that, um, especially not in quite a big area. So basically we wanted to have face recognition um, for birds. And um, the first problem is there's no data. So if you do machine learning, especially if you do deep learning, you have to start with data. You can use other things as well, but you need to have some data. So I went over there and we started off um, creating a data set with individual birds. And we did that with a um, bird sanctuary for um, actually, what's the English word? Um, papagai? Parrot. Parrot, yeah, it was a parrot bird sanctuary because actually this area has a problem with bird trafficking, especially with parrots because they're very valuable. And um, yeah, they, they rescued a lot of um, really beautiful parrots. And the people that worked there knew them very well, so they were able to tell them apart. So we, we used a Raspberry Pi, which is basically like a really small computer um, with a camera. And we went around the bird sanctuary and made videos. And then I tried to write a deep learning um, system that is like looking at the images, like making pictures of it. And then I'd, I'd label it, I'd say this is parrot, um, oh, Bianca was my favorite one. <laughs> um, and then I had a training data set and then I'd need to figure out a way how to make the network understand that it's like you need to identify individual birds, basically. Yeah, but um, because you started out of the data collection and that is the thing in, in environmental science, data collection is hard and three months are not enough to do it. <laughs> so it's kind of still ongoing. And actually, um, when I started, there wasn't a lot around this topic. And when I finished, I actually um, saw a new publication where they were able to identify individual whales and with a method similar to what I thought of. And I think, uh, like, um, yeah, you can transfer these methods, which is also very beautiful. Yeah, but like conservation was the first topic. But um, if you really look at it, you start to notice that everything um, which is conservation and machine learning is mostly computer vision. So 
working with images, working with videos. And I did that a lot also during my studies. Um, and I got bored with it a bit because <laughs> it's not quite interesting to me from, from the method. And um, I looked at, at the space and I, I found communities doing that and it was like all nice. I was like, okay, people are doing that already. That's really cool. Um, but I wanted to go deeper in um, like what else you can do with machine learning and, and the environment. And um, especially because I was moving towards my bachelor thesis then. I was like really digging deep into the field. And then I found a really great paper which basically summarizes how you can combine machine learning and environment, which is called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, um, which probably um, we will link in the show notations yes. or something. And it's a really, really great paper. It's like 100, 100 pages long. Um, and That's it's a collaboration a of many scientists from um, both machine learning fields, but also from the environment, from policymaking. And it's written in a way which I find really cool because every section is labeled with like a color and um, each color means something else. So basically it says if you are not into machine learning, but if you are in politics, if you are in policymaking, um, policymaking this is what is salient to what which is of interest to you. So these sections you should read. And there was a color for machine learning developers. We're like, hey, how are you looking for a new project? Like here, this is an issue. We need to figure that out. And um, yeah, that was like really, really cool. And um, I read it and then I stumbled upon the whole field of um, climate models and how to do machine learning within climate models and especially how to do physics informed machine learning within climate models. And this is how I figured out my thesis topic and I, how I got to my second research um, internship. So right now I'm concerned with that and probably move into that direction. Now I need to explain a lot, for, for example, what are climate models? <laughs> exactly. I was just about to ask. So right now we've heard a lot about your whole way of getting into the area of deep learning and the environment. So you started off with birds and face recognition for birds. Yeah. And now you're doing something with climate models. Yeah. So what's a climate model then? So I always explain it like this. Um, a climate model is a huge number of equations, physical equations, like how water is moving in the ocean, how air is moving around, how particles are moving around. And um, like all of these equations, um, describe a certain aspect of the Earth and you combine them all and you put them on a supercomputer and um, you give you give these equations some input like right now this is our state like we give you the Earth like what we know and then we press play and we wait and the model then kind of computes how the climate is behaving over a long period of time so usually these models run for like a hundred years into the future. And um, they always capture um, what is happening to the climate or like certain aspects of the climate in response to especially greenhouse gas emissions and other aspects. And the, the output from these models is, is what is used in policy making. So if you hear about scenarios about the future, like um, what will happen in a hundred years if we don't um, like 
if we don't figure out how to emit less CO2 or something, these, these scenarios, these predictions come from these climate models. And the, they are really powerful tool, but there are a lot of physical equations on a supercomputer and there are several problems with that, especially supercomputer takes up a lot of uh, computational resources and it's super slow. You need to wait around half a year for a single prediction. And you don't have just one climate model, you have a hundred of them because every research group on the earth has their own climate model and they're making different assumptions about physics, about variables, um, where, because the other problem is we don't know everything. We already know a lot about the earth and what is happening, but we don't know everything. And we also don't know, especially we don't know everything on the scale which is used for climate models, because we can't compute what is happening in like a cubic, centimeter cubic square, how do you say, cubicle, um, because it's just simply too much. We, like, we, have, we have no computer that is able to do it. So what we do is we divide the Earth into 250 kilometers by 250 kilometers by 250 kilometers cubicles, which is huge. And now think about all the things that are happening, especially greenhouse gases are gases are particles that are moving around. And if you really think about it, it's like quantum physics that happens on the scale. And we can't do that, we can't compute that. So we have to assume a lot and we use a lot of statistics. So these models aren't perfect and they're very slow. Um, but we need them because everything is changing so fast and we want to figure out what to do. We want to make projections. We want to inform policymakers. And this is um, where machine learning comes in because machine learning is very fast and it's very, very well with dealing with uncertainties. So what I do right now is figure out a way how to use machine learning in order to make these climate model um, runs faster and more accurate and more flexible. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds complicated. I uh, guess. <laughs> like the, I think the easy part of it is that we all have heard about models which predict what is going to happen in the future. And I yeah. think that's quite close to most people who are at least in a way concerned with what's happening to the nature. Yeah. But I, I think I, I need to make something clear. There is a distinction between weather models and climate models. Mm, I was just about to ask that yeah. because like if everybody looks at like a weather model and you know yeah. that the prediction in two weeks is completely off probably. Especially. And then you just assume yeah. like if that's like the larger scale version of this and then we want to predict like 100 years in the future that that. Yeah doesn't yield yeah, a was, very valid output. Um, I was using the wrong terms. I was thinking about climate models, but still, I think many people who are reading the news or following the news have heard about climate models as well. Yeah, but and people usually mix it up. So weather forecasts are more short term. Yes. They usually are considering smaller resolutions and also the way they are run is different because basically they're using their own output as yeah. input for the next prediction step. I think they are usually kind of predicting based on the data of how many days with similar weather um, lead it to to one also, result. Also, yeah, yeah, I think they they are using more observational data as yes. well to make real time predictions. And climate models are different because what we give the climate models are um, time series over, for example, a hundred years, where we already 
say this is, is, this is how much greenhouse gas emissions we are going to emit and where they are coming from. So we give like the whole series to a climate model and the climate model looks at each of these emission data and then makes predictions. Um, so they use a combination of internal stuff that is going on, which is changing over time, but at each time step they have something which we kind of set before, which is not like changing. And these are our scenarios here, you know, like there are different scenarios where we say, oh, we are that well at um, being nicer <laughs> um, or like worst case scenarios. So this is set and that's that's the difference. Um, and the scale is different, like, yeah. You already talked about um, that you moved on to these climate models and uh, the machine learning uh, emulation of those models. But then again, as you said earlier, like one very fundamental thing is always training data. Um, mm -hmm. What are these models compared to? Are they compared to the traditional climate models or are they compared to something else? So first off, we don't really have machine learning driven climate models yet. So um, what I do with my project with Canada is building one. Um, for now, we have numerical models, so think physical equations, and we have a lot of them. And in some, they're like now they're trying to involve some machine learning within the models, but most of them are still numerical. Um, And the first problem, if you want to now create machine learning models that replace them, is you need, like you said, you need the training data. And that's the first problem, because we have a lot of them, and they're scattered all over the world, and they all have different peculiarities, like different way they name things, how variables are named, different grids, different physics, like there are slight variations. And they used to be on a thousand different servers all over the world. Um, and a few years ago, they kind of formed a group um, where they started to trying to kind of compare these models at least within themselves and like try to give them the same inputs and see how they do and put them on the same servers right now. So um, what I did with, um, with Canada is we try to access these data nodes from these climate models, we try to pick climate models, interface with them and take out all the data and put it into a format where machine learner, learning people are now able to use it. Because if you put a machine learning person in front of climate model data, they will be like, oh, I have no idea what this is. Um, I have no idea how to deal with it. So first we need to kind of make everything workable. So scale everything to the same scale, pull out the same variables, et cetera, PP, and build a, build, a, build a data set. And like I said, data takes a long time. I worked on this for a year. <laughs> and um, the paper with the data set is uh, now accepted in the conference and it's going to be published. And now we can move on. Um, and we already, with that data set, we also published bench lines, which means simple machine learning models that are already looking at the data and doing something with it. They're not, they're not great, um, but they're something so machine learning people can compare their own methods to. So yeah, but like we yeah, are getting all, accessing all these, these numerical models, pulling out the variables that we want. And you have to be very careful with that because you have to 
be aware of certain processes that are happening in the environment, in, in, in the earth, um, to be able to deal responsible with the data and to make the data usable and ex like expressive. For example, take um, CO2. CO2 is a greenhouse gas, it's the most common greenhouse gas, I'd say. Um, and it's always the bad person in the room, like, oh, CO2 is bad. And the reason why, it, why it's so bad is actually um, its longevity, because air CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a very, 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 very long time. Whereas other greenhouse gases that are locally much worse are on the long run not as bad because they they evaporate basically like um, and climate mod numerical climate models know that they know every CO2 that comes in I have to add it up to what is already there and they have like an internal variable about how much CO2 is already in the atmosphere but if you have a machine learning model there they, they don't yet have any internal state they're just a bunch of numbers um, and if you give it CO2 um, like I don't know 10 tons today 15 tons tomorrow it will be like okay now I have 10 tons I do something with it and tomorrow I have 15 tons I do something with it but it doesn't know that the 10 tons from yesterday are still there um, so, for example, what we did in order to inform the machine learning model already on the data scale is to accumulate all the data over a certain time. So we take how, how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere and for that period we just sum, out, sum up everything. So it's like a, a moving average, basically. And that, that is one very simple example how to in, already inform a machine learning model with the physics you know. And there are a lot of different ways how you can do that to make it more easy and more usable um, yeah, to even use machine learning. Because if you just use it in an uninformed way, it will just take up more time and more computational resources and it's not reasonable. Yeah, I feel like I went off a tangent, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's quite a complicated topic, I realize. So we've been hearing quite a lot about different ways how to use machine learning for climate um, prediction. And you've also done something like that in your bachelor's thesis. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so in my bachelor thesis, um, I went into a slightly different topic of how to use machine learning with climate models. And in contrast to the data set paper where you look at the whole climate model and you're trying to mimic everything, you just look at the sub-process. Um, because, like I said before, one problem with these numerical models is that they don't know everything on the scale we're looking at. Um, because the physics is unknown. And one of these examples where the physics is unknown for that scale is um, radiative transfer, which means how energy in form of radiation, so sun, basically sun, um, moves up and down the atmosphere, like how it is distributed. Um, so basically, if you, 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 you think of the Earth and you know, okay, we have the top of the atmosphere, before um, we're starting to go off into space. And there we have sun radiation coming in, so it's very hot. Um, and then we have a lot of air and, and clouds and stuff, and at some point we will arrive at the Earth's surface. So we're looking at the space between Earth's surface and top of the atmosphere, and um, we are asking ourselves the question, how is heat 
from, from the sun transferred down and how it is reflected back and what happens with that heat. And that's like really important because if you, if you talk about heating of, of the climate, heating of the atmosphere, we want to know that. Is radiative transfer only about the heating or also about the cooling process? I mean, it's both. Okay. Uh, so if it's heating or cooling, it depends on basically value. So we're really talking about waves mm-hmm. um, and how long or short the frequency of these waves are, and that will determine if it cools. Um, so yeah, we're looking at just this, this process. And if you think about it, um, we have a problem because... Waves are like sun. Sun rays are made out of photons, and photons are small particles, and these interact with stuff that is in the atmosphere, like dust or greenhouse gases, and they can collide and they can do things with each other, and they will scatter around, and and like a lot of stuff is happening, and we're like, no way, we're going to compute it. So what physicists did is that they made a lot of simplifications. And a lot of assumptions there, like, okay, we're going to neglect that, we're going to neglect that, and we only say it will only move up and down, and et cetera, EPP, and then they did a bit of statistics, and that's what's happening in numerical climate models. And these statistics are A, not perfect, and B, they're still very slow, because even though it is statistics, it's still a lot of computations, because you have to ensure certain aspects, like you have to ensure energy conservation, Like, you can't create more energy than with the energy that is coming in. Um, and you can't, like, take out energy. Like, it, you know, we have to think of different stuff. Um, and, yeah, this is the process, which is just a bottleneck, meaning it's very slow. And it will slow down the whole um, simulation of the climate model. So there was a group, which is also um, from the Institute in Canada, where I worked, um, that took out these um, the statistics from the climate model and um, the inputs that this climate model is getting, and they built a data set for that. And then they tried to run machine learning models that is able to just mimic the statistic process. So this is, this is really difficult um, because the machine learning model imitates a process which is already not what is really happening which is already just like a, yeah, a way of modeling. So it's kind of an assumption of an assumption. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that in the first place, like when I when I wanted to do this, then I started my thesis and I was like, oh, this this looks cool. Um, and then I figured, okay, it's 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 hard. Um, and then um, what what is happening is that the machine learning model is pretty good at mimicking What's, what, the, what the statistics is doing. But um, because the machine learning model doesn't have any internal representation of physics, the problem is um, if you consider something we call out-of-distribution um, scenarios. Out-of-distribution means we run something by the model that it hasn't seen yet, which if you think of the climate is something we need to be able to do because climate is shifting. Everything will change. Um, like temperatures will rise and it will affect a lot of processes and everything will change. So if a model is only like able to do something with a certain way of like a certain type of variables and it doesn't have an, like an internal physics engine, it will completely mess up. So one problem here is that the model is only as good as the data we already have. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, but we don't yet have data with the shifts. Like we can, we have like certain aspects, for example, we consider volcano eruptions or something. But the idea about climate change or preventing climate change is that we don't want to have the data. So we have to have another way of um, informing these models. So basically what I did is um, I looked at these models and said, okay, um, they are not bad, but we want to make them better. And we want to take knowledge that the statistic, that the physical statistic thing have and put it into the machine learning model, the model in a way that's still quick, but that certain things are ensured. For example, energy conservation. The, like the standard data set with the benchmarks, they didn't have it. Um, which was funny because <laughs> actually um, a thing that was problematic is that the amount of sun radiation that came in at the top of the atmosphere was something that the machine learning model was able to change, which shouldn't be possible. So, so when I started to, to tell the model, hey, um, please... Um, do your predictions in a way that we um, minimize how much energy is lost, like we want to have energy conservation. Um, it, it was like really smart and said, okay, I can do that. I just say there's no energy coming in, then we don't have a problem. So that shouldn't happen. Um, so I ha had to ensure, like I just basically wrote a sum. I said, okay, here, look at the input. This is the sum of energy. And in the end, shift it in a way that it doesn't change. And it's like a really simple thing you can do, which already informs the, the model. And I, I basically did that. I looked at different constraints that physicists know about how, you know, radiation energy, like how, how the transfer behaves. And I, I try to incorporate that into the um, machine learning model, which is just a bunch of numbers. So in the end, it will just be a bunch of equations. So we can put equations on that in order to constrain it and and then do the normal machine learning optimization and say, be try to be similar to the data, do what you do, but you, you are not allowed to violate that. Um, and then different things will happen and actually kind of improved it a bit. But since we don't know the ground truth, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult. Um, but yeah, that w was my thesis topic, yeah. <laughs> Um, but then did you, I mean, did you started with the hypothesis that it should be more efficient than the regular statistical model? Did you prove that? Is that something that was very obvious or? So first off, the, the paper I used as a basis for my, for my thesis, um, they started off with doing machine learning models to replace the statistics and they already proved that it, it's, that the machine learning models are as good, but faster. And I wanted to do still as good, still fast, but also apt to do out of distribution um, simulation. So I basically introduced the third way of measuring how well the model is doing, which is like how physically consistent are you? So I think my, my piece is even called improving phys physical consistency. Um, in, in this process. So I like said, okay, there's a third metric we need to think about here um, because we are looking at climate and th there's a lot of physics around and you can't just do uninformed data analysis here. Like you need to have, you, you, like why throw away the knowledge we have? Like that's stupid. We took few hundred, a couple hundred years to get to where we are. We shouldn't throw everything away. 
Um, but also still machine learning is great because it makes things faster. So I always say I, I try to marry these two things, like make them kiss, you know, and take both of uh, best of both worlds, basically. I know it's a bit hard. <laughs> if something is unclear, just ask. It's clear, but it's... Um... It's a lot. <laughs> it's quite abstract, the whole topic. I guess, yeah. Um, and, like, I've, I see that how, where it makes sense, and mm -hmm. it totally makes sense, but it's a bit abstract for me to really jump into the topic right mm -hmm. now. But then my next question isn't really suited to, to fix that. What's your <laughs> I was next about question? to add, ask if the uh, statistical model suffers from the same out of distribution problem or can they are they able to adjust to new factors? The statistical model in itself is doing a bit better because there are equations that ensure that certain physical processes that we know um, are are like being considered. Again, example, energy conservation, it's simple like that. Um, the, the statistical model has that with like, it's in, in the statistical model, there's like an equation that says, this has to be true. Like the energy coming in has to equal the energy coming out and it's, it's mathematics, like there's no way of going around that. And the machine learning model doesn't have that yet. Um, so in that way, it's it's doing better than just just using the data. But then interestingly, energy conservation was something that machine learning model in itself was quite okay at at learning, at least for the data that I looked at. But there were different constraints um, where it wasn't able to to abstract that. Like the more the more complex you think, the less the model will have enough figuring out, unless you give it a lot of data, which we don't have. Um, yeah. That's pretty much it. Something I was just thinking about is that often when you uh, start to train on an algorithm that you might run into the, um, well, into the danger of overtraining it on the data you have. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, if is there any bias in the data you give to the model right now? So is there a bias which could be due to the way it's recorded or is there a bias which might lead to results which are somewhat close to what is more realistic? So, yes, there are a lot of biases. <laughs> like, a lot. Um, because of the way climate models are set up. Um, like I said at the beginning, there are a lot of climate models out there. They come from different research groups and different, like, they all make assumptions. For example, even with um, radiative transfer, which is what I looked at, they already they made the assumption that energy is just traveling up and down. It's not traveling right and left, which is not true. Um, and the the scale we are looking at, um, at first off, is no problem because it's quite a huge scale. So we have like these huge cubicles of 250 kilometers, so we can kind of neglect it. But um, something we want to do with climate models and with machine learning within climate models is to be able to downscale. Um, so make the resolution more fine-grained, be able to look at just five kilometers or just two. And if you think about it, then the assumption that energy is only traveling up and down just becomes less and less possible. Like, no way. For example, there are clouds. Clouds are in the atmosphere and 
they are basically in the way of energy. Like energy traveling up and down and there's a cloud, the energy has to kind of go around that because the cloud is, is different in the like air. It's energy is traveling differently. And like clouds are something that normal models are not able to deal with. Like they, they just they just like, okay, there are no clouds. Or like there is some clouds, but we'll just have a percentage of how many clouds are there. So we're like not really able to model, the, model so that. They're not really taking it into the calculations, just exactly. trying to avoid it in a way that yeah. they can still use the data. Yeah. And this is a huge problem. And this is a way where machine learning comes in. And they're like, okay, um, we will have to figure something out to in order to scale it down and then we have to get rid of these biases um, and introduce different biases, I guess. Um, but yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> um, and how far are the um, data used to train the climate models is biased and what can we do to tackle this issue? Yeah, so here the data is biased um, because we just assume there are no codes. And um, you can tackle this just by changing the way we design it, by using observational data, and also by having physicists work together with machine learning people in order to be aware of all these things, because there's more. There even is this uh, phenomenon where like a certain, um, certain grid cell, so think like, you know, if you divide up the Earth in number of grid cells, um, For some of them, we just never have never had data or like it's just an anchor point and we make it zero. And this is like just an, um, how do you call it, an artifact in, in the data. Um, so you should like remove that and interpolate. Or another thing which is actually funny about um, climate model data is that what climate physicists did is they just said, okay, we just have a fixed number of these good cells. And before I said they are usually around 250 by 250 kilometers by 250 kilometers because it's 3D. That's actually, in the first place, it's not true because they said, okay, we're going to have like, I don't know, 200 of these um, cubicles. And then you think about the earth and the earth is, uh, it's, it's, it's a ball, it's round. It's actually a potato, um, which makes it even more difficult. And um, what they do is they, they, they kind of spread it out and they divide it in a number of grid cells and then each grid cell will be of a different size. And usually around the equator, they will be a lot bigger than, than around the poles. Like they just basically you take a grid and like pull it over the earth. And if you think about it in your head, like the sizes will be different. And if you, if you just use the data like that and ask the machine learning to do it, then certain regions of the earth will be overrepresented. Over Like the equator will be huge. There's like, equator is huge, but we still have a single data point for that. Whereas the poles are super small, but we also have a single data point for that. So then the machine learning model is biased um, because it, the, 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 everything that's happening around the poles just much more important for the machine learning model because there are more data points for less area. So the first thing you have to do is to rescale the data in a way that everything is presented equally. And um, is there already a way to do that? Or is there's it just a way okay. to do it, yeah. There's a, like, there are regretting methods. And this is also what we had to pay attention when we built a data set, like how does the grid look like and how do we make it equal? And how do we do it in a way that it's not biased to certain areas? Because, I mean, of course, 
climate model researchers know that. But a machine learning person, they're just like, oh, I have data and I'm just going to mm -hmm. throw something on it. They don't, they don't know. So here again, we see how important it is to be how as interdisciplinary as possible when exactly. you go into different fields and try to combine yeah. uh, methods or ideas to find a solution for issues. Yeah, yeah it's really important. And um, with the project, with the data set we have, yeah, like just normal machine learning people and we have climate researchers, they don't know machine learning all that do at least a little bit. And we have meetings where we discuss that in almost every meeting there is something where we speak, like we speak different languages and we kind of have to figure out, like we have to understand each other and we're like, oh, this is what you mean. Like sometimes it takes half a year until something is clear. Um, and this is super important. And um, I guess there my background really helped me being a cognitive scientist because I'm used to thinking interdisciplinary. And like, I feel like I can be a bridge um, between all these things, although I don't know a lot about climate yet. So. Yeah. In your bachelor's thesis, you worked with some data you got. Did you also mm. get some results or did you just play around and try to implement an algorithm? I mean, I got results. Um, so I had the original data, um, which comes from this uh, statistics that I mentioned. So like input and what the statistical processes did. And I had the framework um, of, of the benchmark machine learning models. So I was able to just use uninformed models and look at what they do. And then I wrote up my own models and did the whole thing again and compared them. But I had to do it on a small scale because there are a lot of computational resources involved. Um, so I did get results, but they're not super expressive because in order to have, like, if machine learning is, is really expressive, you have to um, be aware that there's a lot of chaotic behavior and there are probabilities and things can happen. So you have to run it a lot of times in order to be sure that it actually does something great and it's just not coincident. Um, and I did run it a couple of times, but in order to be confident in saying it really did something great, I'd need to do it a lot more. And for that, like there I was like, okay, it's just a thesis. <laughs> I will stop here. Um, so also my, my results are biased. Um, of course. So yeah, bias is something that I, I thought of a lot yes. doing my bachelor thesis in my time. And I think it's always important to be aware of all the biases. Um, we can't neglect them totally. There will always be biases, but you need to be aware. Yeah. And then general, when those models are run, do they, well, I would assume that they normally come to results where you think, well, the earth is going to go down soon. So like really bad, um, results for temperature rising, for different, or for weather changing and for um, really extreme events happening. So mm -hmm. after working with all those models, how is your current picture on climate? <laughs> well, there's an expression, I'm not sure how you call it. Um, I think it's like climate change, depression or something like, I think that's the curse my generation has, or at least the people that concern themselves with the topic. Um, if you start looking at the full picture, you will get sad because it's a fact that things will change. And it's a fact that it will get, certain aspects will get worse. And actually my, my supervisor in Canada, a really cool guy, um, the founder of uh, Climate Change AI, 
um, he always says, um, it's a fact that climate change will kill people. We can't change that. Um, but we still can make it less worse. We still have some power to, yeah, introduce a bit of less pain. And that's like also how I look at it. Like, it makes me sad if I, you know, think about it. And um, you can't, you shouldn't do it too much. And I also don't want everyone to think about it like that because, of, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, but what I do is I, I try to find people that think in the same way. And I try to find comfort in the knowledge that I know that there are people around the world that are now um, working towards making it better, making it, or making it less worse, and that they are doing a great job. And that kind of gives me a bit of space to figure out for myself how to position myself within the field in order to improve something. Because I know like where I am right now, It's just playing around. Um, and sometimes that gives me a bit of panic because I'm like, oh, everything is going bad. And then you get into a state of, I always call it analysis paralysis. Like you, you, you look at everything and you're like, there are so many problems and you have to do that and that and that and that and that, that it's too much for a single person. Um, so you have to take that picture and try to keep it in the corner of your eye. That's like how I think about it. Like I know it's there and I try, like I, I think it's important that it's there. Um, I can't undo it. Like I saw it once, it will be there forever. Um, and I, I keep it in the corner of my eye and I try to focus on something and just trust that like a machine learning algorithm, I will converge. I have a heuristic of how to behave in the world. Um, and right now in that heuristic, I incorporate climate and especially nature. Like. I find nature beautiful and I want to conserve it. And I want to know that in the future people see it and have the beauty. And I just have to trust that even like every step I do, I try to improve it. And I know sometimes I will do a small step in the wrong direction. It's machine learning models do the same. Like I do something and I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, no, actually that's <laughs> not good or it's worse than before. But in the long run, I trust that I will find a trajectory that makes it makes it better. And like this is like a loop I, I keep telling myself. So even if I think I know God, what 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 is this? I'm like, okay. We just, you know, have to keep doing small steps and look at my holistic and the holistic will change. And I, I think I as a human being you don't converge because everything is changing. Um, but yeah, I just trust that I'm going I'm I'm finding my way, yeah, and I think everybody else should do that. And I'm I'm like thanking all the people out there that are further further than I am, um, because they make it happen for me that I can find, yeah, my way. I have one final question about your uh, climate simulation. Um, <laughs> I think you hinted at it earlier, but um, right now I think that maybe someone, some listener, could think that um, we then just do the prediction and then we know how bad things are but what do we gain from that but um, I think you already hinted at a application of that where this um, modeling maybe helps us then um, avoid a bigger catastrophe can you explain maybe how how it helps us yeah so how it doesn't just say you how bad things are but actually tells you how to improve things um 
Well, because we are able to run different scenarios. So we can run the scenario which we are moving on right now, like politicians, if you keep doing what you do, this is what's going to happen and this is bad. But if we change what you're doing, like if we imagine we have Europe emitting less CO2 and we introduce this policy or we introduce this policy, then we get a different trajectory of emissions and we put it in the climate model and we're like, okay, actually, this improves it or this improves certain aspects of it. And, and this is what is currently important. So basically informing politicians and informing the industry. And the, I think the idea is if you go further down and we are able to have more flexible models and models that um, are able to operate on smaller grids, then we can study local impacts. And we can study, hey, this area is going to be flooded um, if we don't change something or like, or we know it's flooded and we can move the people out of there. Um, or we know like this new technology will help or it will do bad things in, in changing temperatures, etc. every PP. So that's like basically how where we want to move with that. Just being able to yeah, look into the future in advance and be like, we are not going to do the same mistakes again. Like we, we know what's going to happen. And I think also for human beings, um, knowing even if, if you know what's coming is bad is better than not knowing and it will hit you. And you'll be like, damn, I wish somebody told me. I don't know. <laughs> so there, there is some hope and uh, we are, or at least you are working on uh, on using that. And uh, we talked about earlier that um, being interdisciplinary when it comes to collaboration with other research fields um, is an advantage, uh, but you have referred to yourself basically as a machine learning um, expert. And uh, But are there other fields of cognitive science that you really found valuable when you were approaching these topics? I'd say first off, I'm not a machine learning expert. And even the way I did deep learning is from a perspective of cognitive science. And that's already different to a computer scientist, a difference to a computer scientist that's starting to do machine learning. So I already look at it differently. And then I'd say other things that are important. In a way, although I never did it in my bachelor's, it would be something like philosophy, because Especially if you think about what's the purpose of science, what is science doing, what are models, what do they mean, how, how we interact with them and something. That's actually something that plays a huge role. Um, and I think that's, that's important. And then, yeah, I, I guess it gets mixed up, but I think these, are, these two are the most, most important aspects, yeah. And then even, Even I'd say neurobiology, because the more I go into that topic, the more I realize we as human beings are, are dynamic systems, that there are a lot of stuff happening. And actually, there are a lot of similarities between what's happening in our brain and our body to what's happening with the earth and the people. And it's like there are a lot of analogies. Um, and the more you look at it, the more like you realize, oh, it's actually all the same. And I think we can learn. Um, from both topics, basically. 
yeah, I can tell you a lot of interesting facts that I found. It's, <laughs> it's actually quite funny. <laughs> I think that would, well, we can do that in this afterwards yeah. talk. <laughs> I think it would be too much for now. Uh, thinking about our talk today, when people listen to this episode, is there anything they should really take out of it or a short summary where you would really be happy if people keep that sentence or two sentences in mind? Um, I think don't panic <laughs> when you think about the climate. Um, trust yourself, but also be aware of the biases around you and in yourself and make, point them out to you and think about how they affect what you're doing and what you think. Um, know your data and yeah, I think that's the most important things. So thank you very much for being here today and it was really pleasant to talk about the topic. It got way larger than I expected <laughs> and I'm really glad you took the time to talk to us. I'm glad that I got invited. Before we roll the credits, we'd like to inform you about the Coxie Space Day. This is an event happening on the 18th of November 2023. On the Coxie Space Day, you can meet us as the makers of the podcast, but also connect to other fellow cognitive science students and alumni. There will be a lot of different booths, fun workshops, and some exciting surprises. The Coxie Space Day will be the perfect spot to get in touch, connect, and find orientation in the whole universe of possibilities in cognitive science. You can register on www.coxiespace.de. That's C-O-G-S-C-I-S-P-A-C-E dot D-E. We hope to see you there. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw, produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne, produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.